This is Carl Darge, and welcome to my podcast, Geezers and Gurus on HVAC. Thank you, Anchor, for helping me getting this on the air and out to people. They're uh, hosting it for me, taking care of all the ins and outs and what have you. I am part of the uh, shutdown right now. This is the, uh, um, it's April 2nd, so we're into the uh, second month of our close-up shop type of thing. It's hard to get a hold of anybody, but uh, I thought I would do uh, a a series of podcasts here. Uh, These are going to be on service, and uh, this one here is going to be on a little bit of history, Uh, a history about a person that I know very well and a guy who taught me everything, and I worked with him for over 20 years. Uh, His name is Harry J. Darge. That's my dad. My dad was born in 1912, and I always said he lived in the greatest age of mankind ever. When he was a little boy, the average mode of transportation within the city of Detroit was not car, it was uh, horses. Um, And so he grew up in a wonderful time and was able to see the Model T and the rail cars, the street rail cars, and all of the rest of the good things that happened. And he actually got to see a man walk on the moon. And if you think about that in one lifetime, uh, he did better than the Caesars and the Pharaohs and everyone else. So, getting back to my dad, born in 1912, um, normal childhood, uh, went to uh, a Catholic school. Um, He was part of the, uh, the, the Holy Four which were a group of four guys that would just stop any fighting or bullying in the yard. Uh, They were the biggest kids in school. Might be a good thing to start now, 100 years later. We could call it peer patrol. He could only go through eighth grade because of family circumstances, and that's pretty much the way things, life was in that day and age. Uh, He had to go to work. This was obviously before all the child labor laws and what have you. So at the age of 14, he was uh, opening and closing and running a pool hall. It wasn't much to run. You just take the money for the guys who went playing the games and what have you and uh, keep the floor swept up and that type of thing. Empty the ashtrays. Yeah, that's when people smoked everywhere. And uh, he did that for a while. And he also told me that when he was 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, he was helping somebody. And a guy said to him, hey, can you drive a truck? And he said, sure. He says, well, go move that vehicle over there. That's how my dad learned how to drive. And from that day forward, he just drove what anybody wanted him to drive. That's a great driver's training program. And I don't know about licenses. I don't even know when licenses were required. But I'm sure there was a lot of people in this country driving around when the automobile was first invented that did not have uh, driver's licenses. So going back to what he did after that, you can only make so much money in the pool hall. So when he was like 15 years old, he got a job, and that was delivering milk and delivering ice. He did two, two different companies. But he had two jobs because the milk guy started at 5 o'clock in the morning. He had to get there around uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock to get the horse hooked up to the uh, wagon. And uh, he would after he got the horse hooked up, he'd bring it up, and they'd load the wagon up with uh, the milk that he needed. And then he would take off on his route. My dad said that was the best job he ever had. He had a computerized horse. Tony, he says the horse knew the route. So when he got to the route, 
he would just let the reins go and he'd be in the back end of the wagon there. He they had a little side door that you come in. So he would take the, the rack that held the eight bottles and put in there what that customer wanted, whether it was three, two, one, whatever, and he would go up to the porch, pick up the empties, put them in, and leave the full ones and come back. As soon as the horse felt him step onto the wagon, the horse would walk up to the next customer. And he would buy and while my dad was uh putting away the empties and refilling the, the car carrier. So then he would go do the next house, and this went on and on and on. He says it was really great until uh, you either had a customer that uh, dropped off your route or that you had to add a customer. He said it took a couple of days to get the horse trained. So that was his early morning job. And after he was that, he brought it back, and he was telling me all they, they would bring back. Sometimes people didn't finish the milk, and it would spoil because you remember, or don't you remember, that that was ice boxes at the time and not refrigerators. So they would take the spoiled milk back and leave them fresh. Uh, the spoiled milk, he said, they would put into this vat, and that's what they made cottage cheese with. At the dairy, the dairies made cottage cheese, they made butter, they made many things out of the spoiled milk. We call that repurposing today. After he left that job, he would go down the block and he would get another horse-drawn wagon and he that one was filled with ice blocks, either 25 or 50-pound ice blocks because everybody really did have an ice box. And so he would be delivering that in the afternoon, uh, well, actually late morning to afternoon, and that was his daytime job. Another little thing is, is that uh, we'll go back to heating guys, and especially in the Detroit area here or any place where they had basements, you might have noticed that they had a slop sink down in the basement. And then we all know what a slop sink is, it's about a foot square and about six inches deep with a hole in the bottom. And uh, they had, had those, and a lot of them were halfway up the wall or something, hanging on the wall. That was the drain for the icebox used to have a hose that would go from the icebox down through the floor into that slop sink. That's why they're there. Another great thing about being alive back then, everybody had a nickname. Most I didn't know my uncle's real name until I was a teenager. We just always called him Uncle Snub. That's right, S-N-U-B, Snub. And uh, he was my dad's uncle, but he was only five years older than my dad. My dad's brother was called Dead Eye. Dead Eye was a... Uh, he was called Dead Eye because he was a pool shark. My father's real name is Jerome, and uh, obviously shorting Jerome down would be Jerry, but he was known as Harry Darge. My father was Polish and came from a neighborhood that was Polish and German, and the border area where my father's parents came from was right on the border of uh, Germany and Poland, and so they spoke the language called Kashub. So through all of this little slurring and back forth of the language. Instead of Jerry, we got Harry, and Harry stuck for the rest of his life. We could, did all kinds of uh, roofing and porches. He did stretched canvas decking. He did IX tin soldered flat uh, for the dust porches. The dust porches were on a second floor of the houses, uh, they would, and they would have back stairways that going up sometimes to them, but they had a dust porch up there. That was where you went and shook out your dust mop because they didn't have vacuum cleaners, or you took your rugs out and put it over the side and beat them so that you could get the dust out. He also installed the original uh, roof on the uh, 
Ferndale Post Office. That was done sometime in the 30s, and after he died, they finally replaced it here about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. IX-10 asphalt, wood, copper roofing, standing seams, uh, decking, slate roofing was the big thing. And that's where his uncle landed him a job with the two of them doing slate roofing for some of the Dodge mansions. One of the Dodge mansions that was in the Detroit area, Mrs. Dodge uh, kind of got to know my dad a little bit. He had worked on the job. Was, obviously, when you're working there for over a year, she would come by to see how the progress was on the house, and they got to know each other a little bit. She went into the house after they had the grand stairway put in, which was right off the front door, big grand stairway going up to the second floor, nice sweeping stairs. And she walked up a bit and said, you know, there's something wrong here. So the carpenters uh, took it and checked it out. They couldn't find anything really wrong. She says, there's something wrong with the stairway. It doesn't seem right. So I don't know how my father got involved, but she had asked him to get involved with it. And because uh, they were talking or something on the job anyway, he said he did get involved. The builder asked him to get involved. And he measured it all out, and he found out that the stairway was off. Mrs. Dodge was sensitive enough to notice that the gate was off. There was something about going up and down a stairway, and um, today it's much easier to do because you have, like, patterns for it and everything. But you have to remember back in those days there was no power tools and stuff. A few things were made in the shop. And most of it was made out on the job with hand tools. So he found out that the stairs treads, the height from the tread to the tread, was off. And it wasn't off a lot. Some of them only a sixteenth of an inch, some of them an eighth of an inch, but no, none of them much more than that. The point being is, is that your brain, when you walk up a stairway, becomes automatic. You don't even think about it. Every step is exactly the same size. And then you can walk, 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 up, down, up, down. You don't think about it. You have a gate. Well, that gate was off. They had to rebuild the whole stairway. Another Dodge Mansion he worked on was uh, probably a summer home. It was out near the Brighton area. He did the roofing and the metal work on there with his uncle. And uh, they used to go down to Detroit every morning and be there at the supply yard, the roofing supply yard, and they'd pick up the bundle of slate. He said one bundle. I'm not sure how much slate was in that bundle, whether it was one or two squares or what it was. But uh, if you ever saw a Model T pickup truck, which I've seen at the Henry Ford Museum, the bed is only about four foot square or less. So you couldn't put a lot of slate on there. So they put the bundle of slate on, and that was in downtown Detroit, and then they'd get it on one of the spokes and take it right out to the job in Brighton. And you say the spokes, yes. If anybody is familiar with the Detroit area, our whole highway system is laid out like the spokes of a wheel. Detroit is the farthest south. Go any farther south from Detroit and you're in Canada. So from that southern part of the spoke uh, wheel, you take all the spokes out. We got Fort Street and Gratiot and Jefferson and and uh, Woodward Avenue and, uh, and yes, the other one was Grand River. And Grand River runs all the way from downtown Detroit to Lansing and beyond. So, that was a little paved road in downtown Detroit, paved with cobblestones, but when you got out a little bit farther, there was no more pavement. It was a two-lane dirt road all the way to Brighton, so that would take you a while. So on that job, is what I was telling you about, they were doing the roofing, 
So you have to take all that roofing up to the top of the roof and nail it down. They nailed it down with copper uh, nails because it had to be copper, not galvanized, and I'll tell you why. If a shingle got damaged and you had to replace it, you had a knife-bladed, a flat-bladed knife with a hook on the end of it, and you would take that and slide it underneath the shingle and hit the nail. The nail was copper, so this knife was, was made out of regular steel, and you could uh, jerk it a few times and cut right through the copper. That way you could take that uh, copper or the, the uh, shingle that, uh, out and then replace it with another one. That's why they use copper nails. Uh, the other thing is, is that using copper nails left a funny taste in your mouth. So my dad learned to chew tobacco to, uh, to get, keep the taste out. Everybody that was a roofer at that time that did that, did that. They chewed tobacco for that reason. So putting this roof on and everything else, and here they are, one very, very cold uh, winter. They're working on it in the wintertime. And they go get their shingles, and they take it up to the roof, get it up there. And uh, they were getting up closer to the peak, and my dad wanted to just hurry up and get the damn job done and get up to the peak and get it done. And my uncle was kept complaining. He was working the, the rolls down below him. They had the roof jacks up, and he was working the, the, the road to or down below him. And I uh, kept complaining, yeah, it's cold, I can't feel my hands, it's really too cold. My dad says, well, come on, we're almost done here, and let's get this thing done. So uh, my dad spit his tobacco, and he said, it went up over the top of the edge of the roof, and the wind caught it. And then it came back down, and when it came back down and hit the roof, it was frozen, and just rolled frozen down the roof past my uncle. He turned around, looked at him, and said, we're out of here. Pack it up, we're going home. Now that's, uh, I'm going to tell you a little something about th those days too when you guys are talking about your Ford trucks, your Chevy trucks, your Dodges, and all the other fancy shit that you got today in air conditioning and everything else. Back then there was no heaters, no windshield wipers in those vehicles. If it rained out, the passenger would have to stand there and manually crank the windshield wiper in front of the driver's face so he could see out the windshield. Into wintertime, like I've just told you about, they used to go and uh, pick up, borrow permanently, uh, railroad kerosene lanterns. Uh, there was a lot of them because there was a whole rail system in downtown Detroit, and uh, the lanterns were everywhere. Why a rail kerosene lantern? Because it had a red lens. And so if, when you lit it up and burnt it inside the cabin, which is what they, the cab of the truck, which is what they did to heat it up, which was very small, only a two-passenger thing, very tight. So it was easy to heat with that. But you had to make sure it didn't fall over. But it would never give off enough light to bother the driver as he was driving. So they would so be thankful when you're running with your air conditioning and you can flip on the radio and do some tunes. It's a nice thing to have a modern vehicle, and I'm a very appreciative of that myself. Those early vehicles did not have electric headlights because the electric bulb wasn't what it is today. Most of them used uh, acetylene lights, um, similar to what the searchlights in that use or whatever. It's a very, very bright light. You know you can't look at a welding light, so the acetylene was a really good light to make a headlight out of. If you had a car, it was a smaller tank than if you had a truck or a bus or something vehicle like that. 
That's why the acetylene tank has an MC on it, which means motor car. And the B tank means bus. So the next time you buy your acetylene, are you buying it for your car or are you buying it for your bus? My dad and his uncle parted ways. My uncle was a union guy. My dad wasn't a union too, but my uncle went very union and uh, did bigger commercial stuff. My dad went to work for a company uh, in the Detroit area that is still in business to this day. It's uh, Centerline uh, Sheet Metal. Centerline was uh, uh, a group of guys that uh, my dad sort of, they kind of grew together and he that's how he learned the heating and everything else in the sheet metal part. A bunch of old German guys, some really good dudes. One of them had a, a nickname. We were talking about nicknames earlier. His nickname was Zombie Joe. And I said, I was talking to my dad about it, and I said, you know, the, you know, he's talking about the guys that he was working with and who they were. They were a little older than him. And he says that they were World War I vets, but they were not World War I American veterans. They were World War I German soldiers who were captured by Americans who were kept in a prisoner of war camp here in Michigan. They, Zombie Joe, told his story to my dad this way. My dad says, uh, how did you uh, get captured? How, how did you get here? And he says, well, I was on the front lines in, in Germany, and I was a machine gunner in a pillbox. And he says, uh, one day this whole regiment of Americans started attacking. So he was sitting there with his 50 caliber machine gun and, and shooting down on Americans. And he says, I kept shooting and kept shooting and kept shooting until the bodies got so high that they covered my gun so I could no longer shoot. And then they came over the top and they captured me. That's when I surrendered. At the end of the war, they asked these guys who were here, well, we'll give you passage back to Germany or you could stay here and, uh, come, uh, and become an American citizen. And almost to a man, they said they would stay here and become American citizens. I knew many of these gentlemen, both from the First World War and the Second World War, who were German prisoners of war by us, and they are some of the best and finest citizens of this country I have ever met. They were talented craftsmen, very good citizens, and very good Americans, because that's what America is all about. Um, uh, people from all different parts of this world coming to here to be part of this country not try to change this country. My dad stayed with Centerline Heating, and during the Second World War, he was one of the essential workers. You might have heard that term before, especially recently. That essential worker means that he was working on the city that was being built for the Willow Run uh, um, airplane plant in Ypsilanti. Uh, they were building an entire city, all out of wood, uh, houses, shopping centers, movie theaters, libraries, post office, everything you could think of was all being built. And he was a heating contractor, worked for a heating contractor. It was a company out of Chicago. He used to get his paycheck from Chicago, but he was working, obviously, for Centerline Heating. He said that uh, when he was working there, every 15 minutes you could set your watch at it that a B-17 would taxi out of that factory in Ypsilanti and uh, taxi down the runway and take off. 
real interesting thing about that is, is that there was no men pilots at that time. And you think about this. If you guys think that you're really something, these ladies who were the pilots for these planes, you think about this. That plane was just finished built. They threw gasoline into it, started the engines, had them taxi down the runway and take off. Do you really think in today's world that that would happen? That's a really, to me, is amazing. You ladies are something else. As the war went on, more and more guys were drafted, and uh, a couple of the guys in the company were gone. But my dad had kids, and uh, he was uh, left as an essential worker. And in that time, too, they had ration cards and everything else, and he used to get so many ration cards uh, from the government because he was working on this government project that he could never use all the gasoline. Once you get ration cards for tires, gas ration cards for milk and butter and eggs and meat and everything. He had so many of them that he was able to give them out to friends and family so that they could supplement uh, uh, their food. He wasn't a hoarder like many people are today. So the war was going on, and late in the war, he was getting... Is actually about two years before the war ended, his boss got drafted. So his boss had to go. He went into the Navy. And uh, while he was gone, my father ran the company. And he ran it till he got back. And that gave him enough experience in running the company. So when the boss got back, he had his bank account all full of money. All the jobs were up and done and going, and everything was good. And he says, well, I'm going to go off and start my own company. And and uh, Fred Necker, who owned the company, said, go ahead. They were always good friends. And even 25, 30 years later, uh, I knew Fred, and uh, they were just best of friends. We actually did some work for him. Fred did uh, was a union contractor with Centerline and did all the automobile dealerships that were up and down uh, Van Dyke Road at the time. Uh, besides other things. It was 1946 when my father went into business. He built his shop uh, on uh, 8 Mile Road in uh, East Detroit. Right on the corner of 8 Mile Road and Baseline Road, um, about three blocks from Kelly Road. And from that spot, you could see two counties and four cities. Detroit, East Detroit, Harper Woods, St. Clair Shores. And you could see Wayne and Macomb County. It was a good spot. So we, we did a lot of east side stuff. We were working up in the Gross Points areas a lot. And he did work in the Birmingham Bloomfield area a lot. Beverly Hills was especially, there was a, a company called Miller Homes. And he did a lot of the uh, uh, Beverly Hills homes, the three little three-bedroom ranches that were built there. The boom was on. Building was everywhere. Uh, it was no big deal to get build, uh, builders at that time when all the guys coming back to two-bedroom bed, uh, bungalow with the second floor up above, FHA-approved house were being built all over the place. They were gravity furnaces, but you still needed a certain amount of sheet metal to do the returns and other parts on it. Everything was uh, round pipe. You could buy a lot of that. We bought the Detroit safety pipe and the fittings, but... Um, still needed sheet metal. And sheet metal was hard to get after the war. It was all in priority and this and that. And many, many of the homes were built in the Detroit area, and they would have a wood beam instead of a steel beam because you got your choice. 
Yeah, the choices were if you uh, got a, a steel beam, you couldn't get ceramic tile in your bathroom. If you got a wood beam, you could have ceramic tile in your bathroom, and other things were back and forth like that, fixtures and kitchens and trade-offs and what have you. So he had a hard time getting enough metal to keep the business going. So on the weekend, Saturdays, he would take off and go north to every small town. He'd take a road, take Van Dyke, for say that, and go north and go into each of the small towns along the highways up there and map it all out, and he would go into the hardware stores. In the farm country, sheet metal was pretty common to carry around for patch and repairs in the farm buildings and stuff, and so they always had some sheets of steel. So he would go in there and find out what they had and buy whatever they had. Didn't have to care if it was five uh, sheets or 10 or 15, and then he'd ask him where the next hardware store or supply store was, and he would go. He went every Saturday for years, and he would go north, south, east, and west out of uh, Detroit. Couldn't go south of Detroit, but you could go east and west and north of Detroit and all of these little places and all these towns just to get the sheet metal. When they bought furnaces from Luxaire, they were what they call the A-series furnace, which could be either a oil or a gas, but he told me that it was really, really hard to try and get blower motors, so Luxaire was actually shipping the furnaces without blower motors, and you had to sort of come up with them yourself. So he says it was really tough. They even had some motors that they were getting out of wash machines and stuff to put in there to make it work. Um, things we don't have to think about today, uh, but that's the way it was then. And he be stayed and became successful. Uh, half the equipment he put in was uh, oil, the other half was gas, and uh, they worked for many years. He had guys working for him. He would do whole subdivisions. And at one time, he would actually go in and do the shingles, the flashing on the roof, the gutters, and the furnace in the basement. And I asked him once, how come you stopped doing the shingles and the gutter and the flashing? And he says, well, it's really simple. When you do that, you're dependent on the weather. He says, but when you're putting in a furnace, the roof and all of that's already on. You go inside, you're working there. When you used to set up the gravity furnaces in the fall and winter time, they get the fire pot set up and this and that, and they get a, a, the smoke pipe to the chimney, and then they would could start a fire in there and warm up the basement while they're working on the rest of the furnace and the duct system. The good old days. No power tools of any kind. When I started with my father, and I, I used to talk with the carpenters on the job, and when the circular saw came out, the unions would not allow the carpenters to use a saw because they would said it would cut down too much work on their job and you wouldn't have enough work for the carpenters. The carpenters used to cut everything with a hand saw. And when they did the decking, if you remember back then, was a one-by-six board decking. So the ends of the decking, the tail pieces, when it went off the edge past the bond, would all have to be cut with a hand saw or an axe. And I remember my dad had, would sharpen the axes, so we were going to go roughing a job. So I'm dead serious when I said we would cut it out with a handsaw so that the 2 by 4 on, on the outside wall, because uh, we were putting in outside wall heats at the time, we would have to cut that with a handsaw and then take an axe and cut the front end of it. And I remember in, I thought it was the late 50s when my father got a uh, thing called a Milwaukee Sawzall. When he brought that thing in on the job, 
um, the carpenters and everybody had to come up and take a look at it because they had heard about it. But again, the carpenters union would not allow them to have one because it would cut out too much work. And even the uh, plumbers who were union plumbers, they would use brace and bits that got the holes out. My father was a master craftsman. I remember when I was first learning sheet metal with him, he had to go to the John. He says, here, put this uh, plenum together. And it was a Pittsburgh and just a square plenum for the top of the furnace. And I, I took it and I put it, watched it many times and started it and hammered it over and, and took care of it. When he came out and he looked at my hammer job on the Pittsburgh, uh, I had dented the metal a little bit. He took the plenum, walked to the back door of the shop, and threw it out the back door into the scrap pile and made another one. With him, there was never a compromise for quality. It either had to be the best or you wouldn't do it. He never taught me how to lay anything out. He never taught me how to design anything. He never taught me what he was doing. He said to me that if you are a good helper and want to become a mechanic, then you look at what the mechanic is doing, and if you are standing there, you should know exactly what tool that mechanic needs, and you should have it ready for him. You should have the duck all prepped for him. And it took a while. I worked with my dad like that for 17 years, but honestly, I learned more about the sheet metal business than you can ever possibly imagine. But what he really taught me more than sheet metal is to think of a house in a three-dimensional box. You are not doing a flat plane. You're not putting two heat runs in a room or whatever it is. No, you are talking about a box with these rooms, and you have to move air through it and the proper way of moving air through the house and the basement and everything else. That's what he actually did teach me. I never forgot it. He was a great teacher, and... Uh, he was a master at many things. He was a wonderful, wonderful wood craftsman and everything else. Everything he touched was just absolutely amazing. Well, that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you again, Anchor. You've done a wonderful job on these things, getting them out here with my uh, associates, friends, people, strangers, everybody else who needs to know. And again, Darge did it. <laughs>